Hello, everyone. Just a quick note to let you know that this episode originally aired in September 2019. Hey, everyone. I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. You may know him as Robert E. Lee's father, but Henry Lighthorse Harry Lee was so much more. Born into a Virginia dynasty, the man who would become one of George Washington's protégés came of age with the American Revolution itself. Lee was a graduate of Princeton University, a cavalry commander in the war's brutal Southern theater, and he later served two terms as governor of Virginia. He was a dashing figure who romanticized the ancient world and aspired to be one of the new nation's great slaveholding planters. But death and despair undercut the life that Lee imagined for himself. On today's program, Ryan Cole joins us to discuss Lee's tragic story. Cole is a journalist, speechwriter, and former member of the Lincoln Bicentennial Commission. He is the author of the new book, Light Horse Harry Lee, The Rise and Fall of a Revolutionary Hero. He was in town to lecture as part of our Ford Foundation Book Talk series. He stopped by the studio to help us understand one of the more complicated and conflicted characters of the American Revolution. Before we start the program, I just want to give a quick special thanks to Jarrett Bryan of Rome, Georgia. Mr. Bryan sent us a nice note last week. And I want to remind you all to please subscribe to Conversations on your favorite podcast app. Tune in next week when the library's own Samantha Snyder joins us to talk about Elizabeth Willing Powell, a friend of the Washington family and a power broker in revolutionary Philadelphia. My note to you, I wanted to you know, ask some about your background, but um, you, you had served on the, the Lincoln Bicentennial Commission? Yeah. So um, how did that come about and what, what, what kind of activities did you engage in? It came about, um, I just had a, an uh, offer from a friend named, uh, he may be a friend of Mount Vernon, Harold Holzer, who's mm-hmm. written oh, yeah. extensively about Lincoln, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, to join their staff. And this was uh, 2004, and the Bicentennial was 2009, so it was quite a, bit, quite a bit of planning had already occurred, and then they were starting to really get into the, the meat of it. And so there were some really cool projects. They were uh, redesigning the penny oh, for the Bicentennial, yeah. which yeah. they did. Um, and a whole series of celebrations. And it was kind of cool because it was mostly, the commission was mostly figures, politicians, um, museum directors, educators mm-hmm. from Lincoln states, from Indiana, yeah. Illinois, and Kentucky. Kentucky. So it was, it was kind of fun. They, they would have commission meetings in southern Indiana, Lincoln mm-hmm. Boyhood Home, or in Kentucky. Um, and it was cool to, got to meet a, because there was a commission, which I've, it's been so long, I can't remember with uh, any exactness, but I think it was a 12-person commission. But then there was a, an advisory board, which was full of historians, of notable oh, historians. Sure. And they would have meetings, and, and you would get to interact with some of these people and, and make friends that, you know, you could get in contact. In fact, when I wrote the, the Lee book, one of the first people I reached out to was mm-hmm. Harold Holzer, and he wrote a blurb oh, right. on the book. And yeah, he was back there, yeah. Yeah, and he was, it was funny because he was writing, he just... He had a book published recently, and he said, I was writing my first chapter of my book, and I mentioned Light Horse Harry Lee, right as I had written him, <laughs> saying, would you be willing to blurb the book? And he said it was meant to be. There so, you go. Yeah, yeah, but it was, fu- it was fun. Um, we used to say we worked for President Lincoln, that we were, you know. <laughs> that you did. So I'm, I'm sure he would have maybe found the whole thing bizarre, that a decade of federal planning yeah. to honor his birthday. The celebration, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but it was fun. Well, that's pretty, and is this... Were, were you, uh, at one point in your life, were you working for Governor Daniels in India? Was this before or after the commission? Or? That was after. That was mm-hmm. in 2000. I went in 2009 when he began his second term okay. in office, and I stayed with him until mm-hmm. uh, he left, 2013, beginning of 2013. Yeah. Oh, you went to Purdue, is that right? He went to Purdue, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it's funny. I say working for a... Princeton grad turned governor mm-hmm. prepared me to write a book about a Princeton grad turned <laughs> governor. Um, well, and I guess that's a fun way of getting into the question of what what interests you about Light Horse Harry Lee? Why write this book? Initially, and this had been years, years before mm-hmm. I began this project, I knew that uh, Robert E. Lee's father had been involved in the revolution, and I, and I knew his family beyond, mm-hmm. of course, the cousins were heavily involved in the political side of the revolution, and it just didn't add up. Mm-hmm. I found it incredibly discordant that the uh, man who helped, played such a central role in the near mm-hmm. division of the nation was the son of someone who had helped found the nation. Yeah, create it. 
And it was just one of those bizarre American things. And um, it had always been in the back of my mind. It was someone I wanted to learn about. Mm-hmm. And I began casually with the, you know, the secondary material, reading the biographies mm-hmm. and reading um, books on Robert as well. And then I quickly realized, I have to confess that initially I thought this book could maybe be about both of them. That sure. it would go back and forth. It would make comparisons. Yeah. And I'm not saying that's not a a viable subject, someone could do that. But I pretty quickly into this realized, wow, this is an amazing subject on its own. Um, it's a story with twists and turns and ups and downs and tragedy and glory and romance mm-hmm. and, and grief. But um, I also realized that, that Light Horse is important in his own right. Mm-hmm. Had he never had a son named Robert, I think that he's still someone worth remembering, both because of his contributions and also because it's just a fascinating story. Sure. So it got to the, quickly I realized this book was not going to be about Robert. He was going to barely even be in it, and he's mentioned only a handful of times, really, except for the, the epilogue. Yeah, it comes in there at the end when he, yeah. he receives his father's diary, which is quite a fascinating that was a, sto- the, story. One of the mo- that was the single most interesting piece mm-hmm. of research during the whole process. So let's start there for a minute, and then we'll go back, you know, and, and we'll talk about uh, Henry Lee proper. But you, you describe this moment in the epilogue where here's Robert E. Lee in the middle of the Civil War. Somebody sends him his father's diary. Um, what do you think was going through Lee's mind when he, as you said, here he is, he, he Lee thinks he's justified in in what he's doing and serving the Confederacy and serving Virginia. And then here he, you know, he receives the diary of the man who helped create the United States, you know, in, in, a, in a moment of terrible civil war. Um, what, what sense do you make of that? The letter that came with it came from a Confederate soldier whose father had found that in a trunk with Light Horse's last few belongings. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a journey after Light Horse's death. I don't know. It's not, we don't have that information. Um, he sent a letter saying, explaining what it was, and he made a comparison saying, he, he called, this was, quote, quote, he said, your father was Washington's right-hand man in a, our, you know, first war mm-hmm. for independence. You are now fighting in our <laughs> second war for independence. So in the heat of the Civil War, I have to assume, and also, not to jump ahead too far, but years later, Robert was asked to write a biography of his father, mm-hmm. and it ended up being just a very formulaic, cut-and-paste type job, which was appended to the beginning of um, a reprint of his father's memoirs. Mm-hmm. And there's a passage in there where he cherry-picked a line um, that Lighthorse had said. At some point, he was being considered for one of these commissions to go fight um, uh, Indian alliances in the frontiers, and he made a statement saying, I won't do anything that would potentially you know, make me take arms up against my native country, being Virginia. And yeah. I think Robert maybe strategically, and other historians have kind of seemed this way, has strategically put that in there to after the Civil War to make a point. Right. About. So, uh, you know, I think I would imagine that at that point when that letter arrived and the diary along with it, that his, his uh, he agreed with mm-hmm. that comparison, that second revolution. Seems like he, he, his mind, maybe he was carrying on the legacy yeah. of his father. So. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, his father and his origins. He, you know, Henry Lee is a member of a, uh, born into the member of a very prominent family. What's, what's his origin story? He's born in Prince William County, um, not too far from Dumfries. Mm-hmm. Uh, the plantation was called Leesylvania. It's not there anymore. Uh, it's a beautiful state park. And there are a handful of foundation stones from the home still remaining, and that's uh, about it. And it's on a rise, or it was on a rise, overlooking the Potomac. And that's where he grew up. His father was Henry Lee II, mm-hmm. son of Henry Lee the first, first of Lee Hall. Um, <laughs> and just the family tradition for men in the family was obviously you were involved, you were a planter, you were involved, you bought land, you were involved in your community's militia, mm-hmm. and you were involved in politics. And Henry Lee II was... Uh, Attorney General, Prince William County, and the captain of the militia. Friend of George Washington's. George Washington's diaries mentioned frequent stops at Leesylvania. Sure. Uh, I believe that the first one would have been when uh, Lee's about 10, maybe? Something like 10 or 12. Yeah. So it's not hard to imagine that young Henry Lee III mm-hmm. would have encountered George Washington. And, you know, if you think about it, 
you know, Washington had this inner circle of young men yeah. in his family who he mentored, who all looked to him for advice throughout the years. I don't know. I could be wrong, but Lee's relationship must have been one of the the longest because he was would have been a child when he met oh, yeah, Washington. Probably, uh, yeah. You know, and as I said, their fathers were friends. There's, see, one of the things about Harry Lee that's so fascinating is that a, a lot of the history you have to look at very hard because there's so much mythology about mm-hmm. him and, and a lot of... Um, romantic stuff has been written that you can't... There were some things I couldn't... That I really wanted to put in <laughs> the book. And I, and I did put in some of the romantic things and tried to say, this is this, this supposedly... Yeah, there's some stuff. perhaps. There's yeah. some stuff that... You know, I read somewhere, it must have been one of the earlier biographies, that Washington commented frequently about what a skilled writer uh, Harry Lee was, even as a boy. But I'd ne- I never saw anything verifying yeah. that. But you can you can imagine that they would have seen each mm-hmm. other and known each other. And, and that's his... And, as we said at the onset of the conversation, and you just mentioned, the Stratford Hall Lees were all heavily involved in Virginia politics. Yeah. And um, George Mason didn't live too far away. I think you could you could have seen Gunston Hall from Leesylvania, from Freestone Point, which is this, um, where the land crests and looks over the, the river. So he would have had exposure to all these these people. Yeah, there are a lot of power players in the Virginia gentry right within the vicinity. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because you talk about this romantic vision of of Lee and how people have, have kind of built that up. But it seems like, at least from what I took from the early chapters of your book, is that Lee almost self-constructed that same idea. You know, he's reading the ancient Greeks. Mm-hmm. He's he's taken, I think, with, with Xenophon and the great battles of the past yeah. and this, this idea of martiality. So how you know, how is he, how does he see himself uh, as a uh, an adolescent and then as an adult fitting in with this, within this Virginia gentry world? I think he sees himself, you know, he's exposed to all this literature and history at an early age, and he consumes it wildly, mm-hmm. and he sees early on, uh, there's uh, clearly a romantic idea about um, warriors, yeah. and, and he is buys into that, and he also is, I mean, he's an egotist. You can see it early on. <laughs> he's a, he's yeah. a grand, and that doesn't, it's certainly, we should say that he's not alone amongst the founders yeah, or the yeah. men who fought in the revolution. I say it was an army full of divas. One of Washington's great skills was he knew how to manage them. <laughs> sure, exactly, right? yeah. And not, exactly. Hey, not be offended. Lee was a great example of that, but he clearly saw, lusted for fame, and he clearly saw the revolution mm-hmm. as an opportunity. Not that he didn't, you know, if you want to talk about his, uh, being with John Witherspoon, not that he didn't believe sure. in the philosophies that were underpinning the revolution. Yeah. His family did as well. But yeah. he oh, cl- yeah. And again, this is, I think Hamilton and Lawrence were the same. John Lawrence were the same. They believed in the cause, but they also believed in, you know, their op- they wanted to be famous. They wanted to be immortal. Yeah. And this war was their opportunity. But one story about Lee, we can talk about, we can backtrack and talk about Princeton, the College yeah, sure. of New Jersey, but when he graduated, there's a great account in se- September 1773 of the commencement where he appears wrapped in gold lace, so so as not to be not noticed. So very very conspicuous. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, let's talk about his time at Princeton because he's under the tutelage of John Witherspoon. Uh, you know, a, a Scottish immigrant. He comes from a, a ministry in Paisley. You know, Witherspoon comes in 1768 to take up the presidency of the College of New Jersey. Um, and Witherspoon is steeped in Scottish Enlightenment, but he's also a very skilled um, political and uh, political philosopher in addition to being a religious philosopher. And so, and then while he's at, while he's there, he's, you know, he's training James Madison. He's training all these other, you know, f- famous Americans. Mm-hmm. Aaron and Burr's Aaron there. Burr, yeah. yeah. And so what, um, what, what is... You know why? Why does Lee go to Princeton in the first place? Why you know why there as opposed to you know William and Mary, some yeah. other institution at the time? And then what is he? What is he taking away from this political culture? Because he's he's there as the imperial crisis is is accelerating mm-hmm. uh, before it collapses into the war. And so what, what's Lee's life in, like in this period? He his father went Henry Lee II went to William and Mary. And there was some correspondence with some of the cousins, the Stratford Hall cousins, saying your your son is so talented, has so much potential, he can't go to school in Virginia. He has to go somewhere else. <laughs> Sorry, Layman Mary. Yeah. Um, you know, Witherspoon had a couple fundraising drives and mm-hmm. recruiting drives into the South, and he was in Williamsburg. And you know, Henry Lee the Second serves in the 
colonies legislature. So it's not unlikely that he would have heard sure. the scene. And the reputation was, he brought, as you were, you were saying, he broadened the curriculum. You know, it was a seminary school, but mm-hmm. he turned it into a, a school where young men were trained for all sorts of professions mm-hmm. and they marinated in the philosophy that, that guided the revolution mm-hmm. eventually. And I, I believe that by the time Lee enrolled, there was, you know, maybe only the population of the students enrolled was largely drawn from other colonies. Sure, it wasn't yeah. it was yeah. two or three students at the most from New Jersey. So it was a, it was a destination. I think it conv- and also the Shippen family, which was related uh, to the Lees yeah. mm-hmm. through marriage were heavily involved boosters and they were in Philadelphia. They could write a letter, you know, vouching for a light horse and they could also check on him because mm-hmm. what wouldn't be too far. I think that played a part as well, but then, you know, it was, that was enough to convince yeah. Henry Lee the second send uh, light horse up to New Jersey yeah yeah and w- was he ever any did he ever entertain any thoughts of uh, becoming a lawyer or going to middle temple or exactly yeah. that was the plan after he graduated obviously the war intervened <laughs> yeah. and he there's that little conflict that, was that, conflict that got in that. the middle of it yeah and so um you know we were talking about the Virginia Gentry and his exposure you know he's here at Mount Vernon in April 1775 yeah. dining with George Washington, Charles Lee, George Mason. Mm-hmm. And I think, and I may even be doing a little bit of romanticization now, but I think that dinner, surrounded by two of the most notable military men yeah. in America at yeah. the time, and with the war approaching mm-hmm. fast, you know, they both leave for Philadelphia, Charles Lee and George Washington, mm-hmm. shortly after that. I think that must have been a huge influence. He must have gone to bed here. I think he's the only one that stayed the night everyone else oh, went yeah, home. He, yeah, yeah, I think you re, yeah, you said that in the book, yeah. He, yeah, he must have been night. here, I, I, what he was thinking that night when he went to bed. And then, you know, shortly after that, he writes to Charles Lee after they get their, their commission saying, asking if he can join. Yeah. And I believe the letter never made it. But uh, th- I think That's that right. that dinner, and like I said, there's probably a touch of romanticizing, but that dinner must have played a part in him, you know, well, firing surely, his imagination. Yeah, surely you've, you've got, you know, Lee, Charles Lee, no relation, but, you right. know, a, a former British military officer. Who preferred the company of canines to, to men, <laughs> yeah. famously. I, I'll never forget that I used to work uh, as a student intern at the Washington Papers years ago in graduate school, and I just remember reading this letter from Charles Lee to, this is after Charles Lee gets captured by the British. And, and Lee writes to Washington and says, hey, can you, can you send my dogs to me? <laughs> Washington's like, you were there, your dog's in Virginia, just deal with it. <laughs> but, 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 you know, young Henry, who's sitting at this dinner with these two prominent figures, uh, Lee, uh, of course, the British officer, Washington, of course, had served uh, in the Virginia regiments and, the, uh, and then, uh, with General Braddock, you know, mm-hmm. in the 1750s, like... These two men, I think you're probably right, made a huge impression on him. And yeah. immediately afterwards, he, you know, or, well, not immediately afterwards, but he writes that w- wonderful letter to Lee. It's like uh, Charles Lee that says, "Hey, can I have a commission?" Um, yeah. The letters, these letters are, yeah, you know, one of the most enjoyable things about trying to bring Lee to life was his letters. It all from early parts of his mm-hmm. life and military career to the end, to his, the final years, was incredibly articulate. And, and yeah, then, you know, I mean, obviously, some would say. That was an era where these type of writing letters required more skill mm-hmm. than our communication today. But even even understanding that, he was a very, very eloquent and articulate man, even from an early age. So w- would you uh, speak to the source bases? Because I, I, just thinking back again to my, my days of the Washington Papers, I seem to remember that there, there, there aren't a whole lot of materials, actually, that survive from Lee himself. There, I mean, there are his memoirs and letters that he sent to Washington, but in, in terms of the huge corpus of material that one would normally want when writing a biography, there's not n- not that much. And so what was your research process like to, to begin to reconstruct this figure? Well, the, the Washington letters were incredibly helpful. There's mm-hmm. a, a trove of communication lasting from the war nearly up until Washington's death between mm-hmm. the two, and they're very revealing in terms of Lee's conduct during the war, Washington's value mm-hmm. of Lee. Um, after the war, his advice to, to Washington, he gave a lot of unsolicited <laughs> advice to a lot of people yeah. during the war and after the war. Uh, even his finances, you know, he, um, this is all stuff you can pick out through the correspondence. He traded Washington in the late 1780s 
5,000 acres of land in mm-hmm. Kentucky for a stallion named Magnolio. And then a couple years later, Washington realized that that land had already been promised to someone else. So through the oh, correspondence, boy. you can see Lee's reckless carelessness mm-hmm. in terms of his investments. But one of the joys of this book was, and it was one of, at the onset, I realized this would be, and it was a selling point too, was it would be a way to bring in the other founders, better known oh, sure. founders, and for readers to see them and for me to see them as an author from different perspectives mm-hmm. without them being the main star with them being peripheral characters. Yeah. And the joy was that there's also a lot of correspondence between Lee and Madison. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of correspondence between Lee and Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jefferson as well, even Jefferson. Sure. And and Monroe, Marshall. All the main all, players. All of them. All of them. So it was, that was, I was able to kind of construct a picture of Lee, both his political, mm-hmm. military, his impetuousness, because he, you know, in Madison in particular, it was amazing, real personality, revealing of their personality. He wrote so many hysterical letters to Madison, <laughs> and Madison's replies were so bloodless and yeah, cold, you know, and controlled. Direct. And, and, yeah, and, and Lee's so dramatic. But that was important. There was, it was a bit of a scavenger hunt beyond that because mm-hmm. there's letters. Library of Congress, obviously, and sure. Founders Collection was the the most valuable resource. There's letters scattered around. Um, there's, a, there's Charles Carter Lee, Henry's oldest son from the second marriage with Anne. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I would call it a diary, but he had memoirs that he left describing life at Stratford Hall, some very wonderful snippets, vignettes of his father. Mm-hmm. Um, those are in uh, University of Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, the State of Virginia Library has a ton of, of really good. Oh, yeah. And a lot of the, the financial documents, the firsthand account of Lee's last the trip from um, New Providence to Cumberland Island. I don't want to give away the ending, oh, yeah. but the, um, the <laughs> chronicle well. of that, <laughs> the chronicle of that, things like that were all um, in Richmond. Mm-hmm. And then the state papers when he was governor, um, were great too because sure. his time as governor had not been really covered that much in any of the other mm-hmm. works on him. And it wasn't that there was a ton of really exciting stuff, but it was interesting to see what he was doing. He was getting requests to fix fireplaces in the in the state house or state capitol or leaky roofs or apprehend horse thieves. Yeah. I found that stuff really interesting. Um, and you mentioned it at, earlier in the conversation at Washington Lee, they have the day book or diary that he kept in his final years, which is just amazing, simply mm-hmm. amazing and scary, actually, because it, it's very long and the early pages are somewhat coherent and mm-hmm. lucid, and it, it quickly devolves into madness. It's pretty clear this was someone who was losing their mind, suffering, from suffering from greatly, yeah. and to go to, it's in there, it's in a uh, envelope, it's in a little envelope in their private collection, and, yeah. and they put it right in front of you and there it is. And they also had a series of letters written by Lee in his last years when he was exiled to his wife, to his children. And those, a number of those had not been used in any of the previous works. And that stuff was really fascinating, oh, that's fantastic. too. Yeah. So, so there's some stuff you're right. It's not a huge compared to the others. But it, by, by intersecting with the others, uh, I was able to construct a, mm-hmm. a picture of him and also construct pictures, I hope, of some of the other founders. Well, I love the way you put that, too, because in a lot of ways you very nicely eliminate the fact that these are detective hunts and you've got to really dig deeply to find source material. But in doing in doing so, you eliminate not only the main character of your story, but as you rightly say, you know, Washington and Madison and Monroe and all these other figures who we normally are, we look at as the subject or the main subjects of, of any work that they just happen to be in. But here they are more of a, almost like a, um, kind of like sonar almost yeah. <laughs> in, in ways to find. Yeah, can I tell a quick story it? about sure, this? Sure, please do. Um, one of my favorite moments was there's, I found a letter written in June of 1788 during Virginia's ratifying convention mm-hmm. from James Madison to Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton is about at the beginning of the planning stages of New York's convention, and Madison writes, Hamilton had written him originally saying, give me an update. And Madison writes and says, here are the odds, here's what I think. And then at the bottom of the letter, there's a uh, it's note that says, turn over. And if you turn the, the note over, Lee then wrote another <laughs> wrote a letter to Hamilton saying essentially the same thing. I think yeah. we're going to carry the day. But it just underscored to me that this he was a member of that fraternity. He mm-hmm. was... He was comrade of Hamilton's. He was classmate of Madison's. He was part. He was a founding father, yeah. and wasn't just Robert E. Lee's father. He was a founder of right. the nation, and that in, in, in really hit it home. 
to me. Right, and he's probably sitting right there. You know, he's. You can let imagine. Me just, let me just yeah. scroll on a little note on there. Yeah, right. Madison and, and Lee sitting together, and Lee saying, "What are you doing? I'm writing a <laughs> note to Hamilton. Okay, let me have it after you're done." Yeah. <laughs> that's that's really cool, um, and you know, but before that, he's he's a soldier in the war, and and it seems like, you know. From what I take away from from your book, and correct, please correct me if I'm wrong, but Lee comes across as a guy who almost needs a war to thrive and survive. And so, what is Lee like as a soldier, um, and how how does he progress through the Revolutionary War? He's in, he's vain, he's reckless, he's inventive. Uh-huh. He can improvise. That's what he does. I mean, this is I say he's not. A, what what battles did he fight in? Well, most of the things that he did to. to become a legend weren't in the battles that we remember, mm-hmm. though he was at some of them, but it was raiding British supply trains, sure. finding, you know, stealing clothes and food for uh, cold or hungry soldiers. Um, you know, two of his most famous endeavors are, you know, Scott's Farm, where he and a band of, what, eight other Americans fought off nearly 100 British soldiers who mm-hmm. were sent to capture him because he'd been driving yeah. the British so mad. And, <laughs> and Paul Sook, of course, which he engineered this... this um, storming of a fort that people thought was impregnable at the time, yeah. and he, he scattered it. He convinced Washington to authorize it. He led the the, the march. It was successful, and then he's court-martialed. It was his court-martial. Yeah, because yeah. he rubs people the wrong way. He's <laughs> arrogant. He pushes his connections from from the moment that he joins, uh, you know, Virginia decides to raise cavalry. The moment he's part of that, he's pushing, he's using his name and his connections mm-hmm. to get food and uniforms and arms, and it rank, it, it, it rubs people the wrong way. And again, I said, this is an army of ambitious divas yeah. who, who want the fame, and Lee is has that relationship with Washington, and he then has it with Green later. And I think it, his superiors loved him, and they valued him. Mm-hmm. His enemy, He drove his enemies crazy. Um, I think he drove some of his other... He drove some of his... <laughs> yeah. One of my favorites is that Theodore Bland, who was the head of the Virginia uh, Cavalry from early on when they were raised, at some point he summons, in 1777, he summons Lee to Morristown. And uh, this is his first appearance at headquarters. Mm-hmm. And, and before Lee rides out, he sends Bland a letter saying, okay, I'm ready to come, but could you send me new uniforms, please? Because you know if we're coming into headquarters, we want to make sure to cut the right figure. Yeah. You know, and remember where the, yeah. where the situation with the army is in terms of resources at this point, that this just shows the vanity and it, yeah. also that notion, romantic notion about what a uh, cavalier should look like. And um, But he, and I don't want to make it all sound like it's all bad because, you know, during the War of Posts, for example, this is they tear through South Carolina, oh, sure, yeah. dis- dismantling all these posts, and they do it, they improvise each each step. One, yeah. one fort, they concocted a ladder of trees to fire down on the British. Another one, they're shooting flame-tipped arrows. So he, he was nimble. He could think quick in the, mm-hmm. the field. He was incredibly brave. Again, not the only one. You know, Lawrence was probably, I think there's a quote by Lafayette saying he only, he survived these battles, not because he wanted to, just by chance, because he was, you know. <laughs> so, but um, it was a real mix of, of all these things. And it's, a, it's romantic. He cuts a romantic figure, even though he's arrogant and he offends people. He's skilled and he, he's vain, but also, and there's a lot of diary entries, a number of diary entries where, you know, people observe him and aren't just in awe. He cuts such an mm-hmm. incredibly dashing figure. And, I, you know, this is probably, I don't know if it's later in the conversation or not even in the conversation. I know I said that Robert wasn't the subject of this book, but you can't help but wonder if some of this there's, is passed on through the blood in terms of striking a figure that other soldiers would look at. It well, in, yeah, in terms of like how to carry yourself and how yeah, to, bearing. You know, your one's comportment yeah. amongst... Well, and I think the, the, the story about him wanting better uniforms is you know, a concrete example of that. And here they are, desperately in need of supplies. You know, they're constantly trying to get munitions, trying to get basic food and clothing and, and whatnot. And Lee's like, you know, we want to make sure that we have the best uniforms on when we're riding into town. And, that, yeah. and in a lot of ways, that, that really – and I, mark, I think I marked that out in the, in the book too. I'm like, well, that, that sort of tells you everything you need to know about Light Horse Harry Lee and how he is carrying himself and how almost at times he is so committed to this, this idea of um, – self-construction of, of, of creating the sense of identity around him that he almost is almost out of touch with what sort of reality around him. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, he's court-martialed at Paula's Hook. I love that episode. Yeah, and he, um, of course, he defends himself. Yeah. He gets his chance to be a lawyer, um, and he's cleared, and Congress awards him a gold medal, yeah. the only soldier below the, the rank of general. 
And one of the charges, right, is that he someone questioned his his rank, his rank as they were departing, and he misstated it. And so the argument would be he shouldn't have been leading mm-hmm. the endeavor because the the other officer, who was uh, one of the Clarks, um, the older brother of George Rogers, and oh yeah, and, and William, yeah, yeah um, should have been leading, should have been in command, yeah, and the whole series of charges, which are all. And Washington, again, one of the things about this book is that it was such an opportunity to see how wise Washington was and how what a terrific... Mm-hmm. I had someone say to me I, who read the book, said, you know, Washington was the only person that came off as, you know, likable in, in the book. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's true, but he definitely, um, during that episode, Lee continually wrote him and said, you know, mm-hmm. make sure everyone knows this, tell Congress this. And Washington, although he supported Lee, was very calm and said, I don't think that's going to help you. Yeah. And then they, Lee is cleared. And But I think that... Like I said, he got he was awarded that gold medal, which he never gets. Mm-hmm. Typically, typically, yeah. but it le- obviously left a sting, and that you see play out in the, with the rest of the war and his eventual mm-hmm. um, leaving of the army before the conclusion. Oh, sure, of sure. The war. Well, let, let's talk just briefly about his time in the northern theater versus the southern, because the, the you know the northern theater he's he's doing uh, pretty amazing things, the Polisook campaign, but then the southern theater is. Notoriously brutal. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. that's not to make light of the Northern Theater, which is very violent as well. But really, in a lot of ways, the Southern Theater was a was a true civil war, both on the imperial level, but also amongst patriots and loyalists. And mm-hmm. so, what? Yeah. How does how does that particular series of campaigns shapely in ways that um, inform uh, his later life? Do you think? Yeah, it's. It, his experience in the South, I would say, is probably bloodier. Mm-hmm. And, um, is the the Revolution was in its way a civil war, but this was, as you said, was loyalists versus patriots mm-hmm. and um, massacres. He saw Americans hacking, other Americans hacking each other to death. He participated in it, and I think he years later, and he became. It was kind of a little discursive, but. There were periods uh, after the ratification of the Constitution when Hamilton's financial policies were put in place where he was furious. He thought it was a terrible idea that the mm-hmm. federal government would assume the state's debts. He thought that promoting uh, manufacturing in the north at the expense of agriculture yeah. in the south sure. was terrible. His own self-interests were jeopardized. And he talked very openly about disunion. And mm-hmm. um, he spoke fairly radically. And, of course, it was always to James Madison – who just patiently <laughs> must have... I wonder what his reactions were when he received letters from, from Lee. Oh they were always we hysterical. Here we yeah. go again. Um, but he backed away from it eventually. You know, he had this political transformation. He was a Federalist. He supported the mm-hmm. ratification of the Constitution. Then when uh, the new government actually got going, he was appalled. He backed away. He started uh, allying with the, you know, what was the formation of the Democratic-Republican sure, Party yeah. around Jefferson. And that was for a couple years. But then he bounced. He started bouncing back um, about the time into his second or third term as governor mm-hmm. of, of Virginia. And he said in a letter, you know, he, c- he continued to say, I think that these these policies of the federal government are terrible, but there's nothing we can do. The only option is civil war, and that's too terrible to contemplate. And I think that was obviously uh, influenced by the fact that he had fought in a civil war yeah. and didn't want to do it again. Oh, sure, sure. Well, and, and as you just mentioned, one of the fascinating things I found about the book is that he Lee is vacillating between Federalists and Republic and Democratic Republicanism, and so do you. And it kind of gets back to the the, the question or the maybe the thought I raised earlier is where Lee Lee was never more comfortable when, than when he was fighting in a war. And so, do you think you know after the war is over and then the the formation of the new nation and the new government, he he kind of almost becomes unmoored and doesn't really know what to do with himself, mm-hmm. and he's trying to find his place in this new society. Yeah, it was, he was frustrated and aimless. And then well, compounding it was two other things was that beginning of the new nation, all this promise in terms of his investing in land and the population moving right. west and him capitalizing on it. And in particular, this land he bought at the Great Falls of the Potomac mm-hmm. that he thought was going to be this manufacturing city to rival the, you know, Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And none of it gets, none of it's all stalled. You know, these, there's back taxes owed by the Fairfax, and he can't take ownership of the land. He can't find investors. So he's hugely frustrated by that. And then his wife dies, Matilda. Sure. The divine yeah, Matilda yeah. dies. And uh, shortly after, she gives birth to a boy, Nathaniel Green Lee, 
dies and oh. then she dies and this all's happened this whole confluence of he's politically alienated his dreams of striking it rich mm-hmm. with land um, aren't coming to fruition and he loses his wife so he's aimless and he's angry and as you, exactly as you said at the time he becomes governor of Virginia shortly afterwards as a loosely affiliated with Democrat Republicans mm-hmm. and there's a war in France and he's offered a commission. It's like, oh, that sounds fun. Sounds really interesting. And he, <laughs> he contemplates it. And again, who does he turn to for advice but George Washington? George Washington, yeah. Who writes this wonderful letter. Simply, I think he says, there's not much I can say as a public figure, and there's not much I'm willing to say as a private figure, but you should consider what it would look like for the chief executive of one of America's largest states to go fight another country's <laughs> war. And Lee, Lee says, Lee writes back and says, I, it was just a period of madness. Thank you for making yeah. me see reason. So instead, he, as he says, I think when he married Matilda, was it Green or Washington said originally, I think it was when he married Matilda, you're, you're trading um, Mars for Venus. You know? Oh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. That was Washington, yeah. Yeah, remember, yeah. and he, he marries Ann Carter, who's another daughter of one of Virginia's mm-hmm. um, Foremost families. I should also point out that during all this, he loses another son, Philip Ludwell Lee, oh, yeah. who's his, um, the oldest, who's the heir, oldest son with Matilda. So Matilda, they have a boy, Nathaniel Greenlee, he dies, Matilda dies, and then Philip Ludwell dies, all in this span of, what, a year and a half, two years. So he's grieving. He cuts this romantic figure in Richmond. He's described as being at the head of everything in Virginia, riding in a chariot, shiny chariot pulled by six of the finest horses in Virginia. <laughs> But he, so in theory, he marries this beautiful daughter of one of Virginia's mm-hmm. foremost families. In, he's a governor of Virginia. In theory, he's, he's you were saying he's drifting. And yeah. he says, I, I'm as suited for war as I am for peace. He's drifting. And it seems like now he's finally found his place. He's, he's not going to fight in a war. He's found a beautiful wife. He'll start another family. He's the number one person. He's the most prestigious person, most glamorous person in Virginia. Yeah. He's, um, so you, you think, oh, then he's finally... He's got it all. He's got it all. There's a newspaper account of the wedding, which takes place in uh, Shirley Plantation, the Carter Plantation, saying, you know, the prospects for this couple are just fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like the Kennedy. Someone once described it as the Kennedy. Oh. They're, they're beautiful and they're young. I think he's, he's a decade or so older than her, but he's still in his 30s and he's still handsome. And she, she you know, they're glamorous and they have connections and family names. So you think, wow, this is it. But that's not no, how that's not how Light Horse Harry Lee's story that's goes. <laughs> no. Yeah, it's it it is a continuation of much the same, right? These financial difficulties, um, uh, political difficulties. The War of 1812 comes along. He wants a commission. Um, yeah. Uh, from the president doesn't doesn't get it, and that's uh, interesting because he's completely opposed to the war, and this gets to notions about duty. And yeah, yeah, that he he thinks the war is folly. He writes un, again unsolicited advice to Madison yeah. about the war. <laughs> Don't fight the war, but if you fight it, do it this way. Um, and he says, "I'd be happy to to take up a commission." But I think his health is failing. He's mm-hmm. you know he's also he's been in debtor's prison already at this point. He's, right, he's a, somewhat of a disgraced figure, so he doesn't go. But he does shed blood yeah. related to the War of eighteen twelve. So how does he shed blood without serving in the military during the War of 1812? In the summer of 1812, shortly after the war begins, he finds himself in Baltimore, mm-hmm. where a Federalist newspaper printer named Alexander Hansen has been printing. It's Baltimore is a Democratic-Republican city, from mm-hmm. the mayor on down to the police to the citizens. And Hansen is a, a very uh, inflammatory writer who's attacking Madison, attacking... Democratic Republicans, he's chased from the city, he comes back, he holds up in a home, he constructs a little army to defend him <laughs> and his newspaper. And perhaps he was thinking about Scott's farm, you know, in the revolution, oh, sure. when Lee um, repelled a superior British force holed up in a, a farmhouse. And Lee comes to his defense. Years later, he would say he'd only come to Baltimore to play a game of uh, cards, or he was looking to chop his memoir or Mm -hmm. something along those lines. But it seems to me that he came to defend the house. Although he's not, he's no longer the red-blooded warrior that we talked about. He's an old man now and he's, um, his health is not great. And he actually, among Hanson's group, is the one who urges them to surrender and says, don't fight this mob that shows up outside Hanson's door. And he manages actually to broker a peace 
and the police take them to the city jail. But again, this is there's very little interest amongst the political leaders in Baltimore protecting these people. Yep. The mob storms the prison. Lee and the party try and escape. He's beaten with clubs. His nose is sliced. His cheek is sliced. There's hot candle wax poured in his eyes. Oh. And he's described afterwards, his head is completely black. His clothes are covered in, in blood. There's a hole where one of his eyes once was he survives some of the federalist newspapers jump the gun and say lee has died general yeah. lee is is dead but he actually does survive but that's it that's his spirit his his spirit was already mostly broken because he was in his mm-hmm. his finances landed him in prison and his spirit is broken and now his body's broken and this is really the final act and i i think it's also though his final public act in a sense because he was a martyr for the first amendment he sacrificed his body mm-hmm. and nearly his life for Hansen's right to print that newspaper. And I, I think that's that's not usually viewed as part of his legacy. It's, oh, he was beaten by that mob. But why was he beaten? He was there no. defending the right of an American to, to print a newspaper critical of the government. And as you say, this this is kind of the, his spirit was already broken, but this, this sort of marks the beginning of the end for him. Yeah, there's great vignettes. Um, because the Lees at this point had lost Stratford Hall. It had um, Henry Lee IV, his oldest surviving son with Matilda, mm-hmm. took over ownership when he became an adult. So Lighthorse and Anne and their children, including Robert, then moved to Alexandria. She actually engineered the move. There were many Lees in the, in the town as brothers. Uh, it was Federalist. Mm-hmm. It was close to the capital, of course. Um, but there's great vignettes of him in Alexandria. It seems like he was completely aimless, but young girls seeing him in Christchurch and locking eyes with him and being terrified. His face is wrapped in bandages, oh, yeah. his eyes black. Uh, there's a, a story about um, a Christmas party at the end of 1812 in Alexandria at a hotel, and he shows up, and it's a visitor from Boston, and is horrified, this man who's wrapped in bandages and who has this gash across his nose, and um, he's told it's... Light Horse Harry Lee, it's one of George Washington's protégés, and he sits down at the table, and he charms everyone and tells them stories about Washington, and it's just, you can't reconcile that this is... And the same thing with the the children in in Alexandria who were horrified by him. Their parents told them that's a hero. He's an old hero from the War of Independence. So it's this dashing um, cavalier, so romantic, has been turned into a monster in his final years. That scares children. He's a... gallant figure in the revolution and you know the guy who wants the best uniforms to cut the best figure and now he's this vision of hell at the end of his life yeah uh how does it end for him he his health is failing i think largely because of the beating Mm -hmm. Uh, just existing is uncomfortable and he decides that a warmer climate would perhaps relieve some of the pain he'd written to madison who's president and monroe who's secretary of state at the time asking for mm-hmm. to some way to escape, to go on an aid ship to the... Uh, oh, this is, and this is during the War of 1812, during right? War of 1812, and finally, he, Madison finally relents. And and this is another really interesting thing. The Chesapeake Bay is blockaded, mm-hmm. and, and Madison has Monroe right to the general who's in control of the blockade saying, and, and I found this in some State Department records, saying as... The general, general Lee is a old friend of the president. He asks that he be allowed to pass. I thought that was fascinating, and he does. And he sails to the West Indies, and he spends five years wandering from the island to island. He um, relying on the kindness of strangers or the mm-hmm. gullibility of strangers. And he's a pauper at this point. He's described as his clothes are just rags, and he's emaciated. And he has that diary with him, which I must have been one of his only friends during the, that period. Yeah. And he. He writes observations about politics, about ancient history, about, you know, plays and poems he loved. There are notes about George Washington, mm-hmm. of course. Sure. Um, there's notes. He sent letters home to his sons asking about Robert. One mm-hmm. of them ended with Hug Robert for me. He knew, he didn't know the youngest children, and he knew he never would, Robert and Sidney Smith. Smith. And uh, he wrote home always asking about them. And when the letters weren't answered immediately, he became angry. So mm-hmm. he was obviously lonely and um, at the very end, he comes back to America. He catches a ride on a on a ship from Nassau up to George Coast. He actually, to get out of Nassau, he has to clear his debts. He doesn't have any money. There's an old widow who's taking care of him and feeding him. 
and he actually gets her to pay off his debts, and he gives her a note of credit to a bank in Savannah. He has no money in any bank yeah. in Savannah. So he gets back to a, um, off the coast of Georgia, Cumberland Island. He realizes that's where Dungeness is, is mm-hmm. the home built by Nathaniel Green's wife and then lived in by his daughter. Um, and he says, take me off the boat. I'm going to die in the home of my old general. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what he did. Yeah. Now, in, you said earlier that uh, the diary sort of hinted at him descending into madness. Do you, is it your sense that as he is uh, after the war, and but uh, you know, and after he's, particularly after he's injured grievously, is he struggling w- with what we might call now post-traumatic stress yeah. disorder? Yeah, absolutely. He may have been struggling with it after after the Revolutionary mm-hmm. War. Yeah, his whole life. There's there's um, vignettes of him after the war. He just um, fighting with Matilda. There's a great um, quote from Arthur Lee about keeping company with Matilda and Harry's, you know, I can't remember it exactly verbatim, but, you know, Matilda hysterical, Harry ranting, wonderful company, <laughs> you know. I um, guess I shouldn't laugh, but, you know, that's, you know, it's a funny yeah. quote. Yeah, yeah it's, it seems like his transition was difficult yeah. and that he was, he was uh, explosive and that was probably, yeah, probably traumatized and certainly, certainly after the beating, yeah. he, was, um, he was, he was already in a low place, but it was became much worse. It, went, and, it accelerated yeah, from there. Yeah, and those five years must have been... And the, that diary is testimony to those five years must have been just terrible. Yeah. You know, he in the letters home, he constantly talks about his health, about he would find a Spanish doctor who was skilled in treating his ailments. I think his gallbladder had been so badly damaged. Oh, but yeah. His, his health, he would write home saying, I'm feeling a little better, and then the next night would be saying, I'm in constant pain. It was uh, constant up and down. Like I said, relying on people to take care of him or swindling people. Mm-hmm. Um, very sad ending to what should have been one of the finest American lives. Oh, yeah. Well, and it's a good example, too, of of the fact that, you know, we have all the modern research and science that helps us understand post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, for, you know, since basically World War, well, actually the Civil War, you know, we have have good evidence of that. Certainly, you know, World War I, where people talked about being shell-shocked, and certainly after the Second World War and, and in the modern era, but there's just a whole lot we don't really know about how the violence of the war, or the Revolutionary War, affected people long after it was over. And you know, you might, you might, someone out there ought to write a book about, about yeah, that. Quite frankly, it's absolutely. And it's amazing because such a high number of the men who went on to frame the Constitution and people to government in the years after the war fought in the war. Yeah. You know. So it's interesting. That's a, that would be a great subject for a book. Yeah. Well, Someone there, out there. Well, there, there's your there's your next book right there. Yeah, I know that you're a, you were a speechwriter in a former life, and so, or maybe you still are actually. Um, yeah. Uh, how how does the process of learning how to write um, for someone else and write speeches, but also you were a journalist too, and so mm-hmm. how does how did that process help you uh, inform your sense of direction with this book and how to communicate the the ideas that you wanted to get at? With the speech writing, uh, you know, there's a great quote by um, Edmund Morris, mm. now late Edmund Morris, mm-hmm. wonderful biographer who you know, wrote these fantastically embroidered books about Theodore Roosevelt. Yeah. Um, it was in his, there was a collection of essays that he put out a couple of years ago, and he basically said, you know, a, a writer to earn his keep has to translate, mm-hmm. do technical manuals, you know, write op-eds about very random things, a whole series of things that aren't particularly glamorous or aren't the next great novel. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true as a speechwriter or um, if you're in communications in government, for example, you write about Head Start programs mm-hmm. or you write um, notes, vetoes about um, the selection of trustees for college boards, things of that nature that mm-hmm. don't strike you as romantic or exciting. But you learn how to convey a number of ideas and things in terms that a general audience can understand. And that's always what, from speech writing on down, op-eds, um, anything of that nature has always been my goal to try and write things that a general audience can will digest mm-hmm. and be, be moved by. And the historians that I, when he was writing this book that I kind of kept in mind, a lot of them, you know, McCullough, if I'm not mistaken, his background is a journalist, mm-hmm. you know, and... Um, Walter Lord and Barbara Tuckman and people like that who had this journalist eye for history. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just dates and names, but they looked around. And I remember going to Leesylvania, and there's no house there, and looking around and trying to figure out what it, what Henry Lee would have seen as a boy. And, and that type of, um, 
I think that's a journalistic eye that you bring to history paired with a, a desire to write in a way that's eloquent, but also in a way that is um, for a larger audience. Not this isn't a book that's written specifically for for historians or history buffs. Sure. It's for, so, so for th- people who are interested in a good story and you know, and who are interested in history. History, don't get me wrong, the research in the history is incredibly important, but also oh, sure. I think it's also important to write something that people enjoy reading and find accessible. And so you, you had a deliberate audience in mind then when you started writing this book. Yeah, I had a people who didn't know about Light Horse mm-hmm. earlier, who had only knew he had written those famous that famous description <laughs> of George Washington or knew he was Robert Oh, the eulogy, father. yeah. The eulogy. Um, and uh, because it was such a... At the beginning of our conversation, I was saying I was drawn to it because of this kind of this strange connection between a hero of the revolution and the arguably the central figure of the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. But I soon realized that this was a this was a you know Hamilton's life made this very famous musical, but Lee's would have made a terrible opera, a tragic opera. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Know? And and I wanted to share that. Yeah. I wanted people to not just to um, know the dates. And the names of the battles, but mm-hmm. I wanted them to get a sense of this this tragic arc, and I thought they would would find it compelling. I hope they do. But yeah, try to try to make a combination of history and research mm-hmm. and something that people will enjoy and find entertaining. That's my philosophy. Well, do you have a sense next of where you uh, want to deploy those skills in the future? Yeah, I do actually. Thank you for asking. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, I've got two things going on right now. One is um, the doomed president, uh, the path to the Pacific, and the unraveling of America. It's about four years of the Pierce presidency. And oh, it actually hits on some of the themes of, of this book. Well, and speaking of mental anguish. Yeah, yeah mental yeah. anguish. His son yeah. um, was nearly decapitated shortly before he became president. He enters the White House grieving. There's some thought that the sectional crisis has uh, been solved and it flares up largely mm-hmm. because of inspired by the desire to create a railroad to the Pacific. Yeah. Bleeding Kansas happens and you have a president who's completely incapacitated and, and also who has some very interesting... Um, whose father fought in the revolution, and mm-hmm. and Pierce had some interesting notions about what the executive could do based on politics that stretch back to Thomas Jefferson. Oh, that's interesting. His own, you know, he fought in the war uh, in America's war with Mexico. Yeah, largely, Mexican war, yeah. largely, I think he had a complex probably um, because his father was a hero, his brother was a military mm-hmm. hero. He was a more complex figure than he's given credit for being. I'm not trying to. Um, say he was a great president, but he's an interesting, compelling figure, and he was president at a terrible time, and he was the wrong president at the wrong time. (laughs) But it's a snapshot of a period in American history that brings in Jefferson Davis, who's Mm -hmm. the Secretary of War, who's in charge of the surveys to determine the path of the railroad, whether it'll go south or north. Stephen Douglas is involved. There's a a whole uh, host of interesting characters, the rise of the Republican Party and the fall of the Whigs. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like one of these... um, Candace Millard type of you take a mm-hmm. one little piece of uh, period of time and tell a big story about it, so that's that's something I'm working on, and I've been for years been meaning to write a biography of uh, Lou Wallace, who is oh, would be kind of a sequel yeah. to to Light Horse, a very similar happier ending, but a similar figure, a romantic military mm-hmm. figure, an author, a politician. He was a you know obviously a scapegoat for Shiloh, and they save Washington, sure. the Battle of Monocacy, and he was. Um, Governor, territorial governor of New Mexico during the Lincoln County Wars. He intersected with Billy the Kid. He writes Ben-Hur, one of the most successful <laughs> novels of our time. And he's a Hoosier, of course. Yeah. But, so those are the two things. That home I'm, team. Yeah, home team. And, uh, <laughs> and much likely, in a lot of ways, vain, uh, obsessed with military glory and romantic notions about it. Uh, but like I said, much happier ending, more much successful ending, yeah. career. So those are those are two things I'm... I'm in juggling right now. Well, that sounds great. Well, Mr. Cole, thank you very much. Uh, I know you've got to go give a book talk here in a little bit, so we'll let you rest. But all the best uh, of luck with this book. And um, I enjoy reading it, and I think others will too. Great. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening to Conversations at the Washington Library, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky, with assistance from Mount Vernon's Media and Communications Department. Our theme music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, please consider becoming a Mount Vernon member. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org podcast. Thanks and see you next time.